Blog Talk Radio. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal wills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate On earth is not his equal Did we in our own strength confide Our striving would be losing We're not the right man on our side The man of God's own choosing Dost ask who that may be Christ Jesus it is He Lord Sabaoth His name From age to age the same And He must win the battle For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. That word above all earthly powers No thanks to them abided The Spirit and the gifts are ours Through Him who with us Let goods and kindred go This mortal life also The body they may God's truth abideth still His kingdom is forever matter folks as we are rounding out our episodes on the Protestant Reformation we actually have another show next week um, 
actually five shows uh, this month, which is pretty rare, but uh, couldn't be a better month to do an extra show as we continue our focus on the Protestant Reformation. So far this series, we've done two debates, uh, one on purgatory, one on Sola Scriptura. If you go to our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Blues, uh, you can find those debates as well as several other debates and podcasts uh, that we have hosted on different topics. Um, mainly, we you know we focus on apologetic issues, so we've done things on uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, atheism, uh, Islam, intelligent design. Had a whole month where we just looked at. Uh, intelligent design and, and science, and uh, interviewed people like Ken Samples on the philosophy of science, uh, as well as Jay Warner Wallace on his new book, God's Crime Scene, uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer on the new book, Debating Darwin's Doubt, which is a response to uh, a lot of the critics that came out against Darwin's Doubt. So, you know, we, we have a ton of shows, a ton of different topics. We've been doing this show for three and a half years, and this is our second or third year now uh, where we focus on the Protestant Reformation uh, in October because, frankly, folks, we think it matters. Uh, Theology matters, name of the show, and uh, we believe it really does. Um, There are much that uh, we can learn from Roman Catholics, such as uh, things on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I think they have some of the best moral philosophy around I was able to go to the Apologetics Conference last weekend in Charlotte and able to uh, meet Ryan Anderson, who is a Roman Catholic, uh, but is also one of the best defenders there is on traditional marriage. So I want to be clear as we're doing the show. You know, um, we're not uh, we're not like Jack Chick or something like that, Dave Hunt or something like that, where we're just uh, kind of blindly, you know, anti-Catholic. There's a lot of good things uh, Catholics uh, have done as far as carrying the torch for the pro-life movement. Uh, again, very good stuff on moral philosophy, excellent stuff on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but at the same time, these things matter. These theological issues matter, and we think they matter greatly. And that's why we focus uh, on these issues. Uh, apologetics is not just getting people to believe God exists, but it's also got to be the right God. And uh, why I would say the Catholics definitely have uh, the right God and the doctrine of the Trinity, I think the issue uh, is going to come up on soteriology, and they would say the same thing about us. So it's not just a one-sided, uh, one-sided fight here. But uh, with with all that said, again, go to our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Clues. Be sure to like us there, find our podcast, and uh, feel free to message us, get a hold of us, uh, let us know if you have any apologetic conferences or events going on or theological events, whatever, let us know. And uh, we can get it out and let people know uh, if they're in your area, what's what's going on. So with that being said, um, we'll, just, we'll, we'll kind of jump into the show here. Um, I'm having my uh, good friend, Bill Roach, Dr. Bill Roach, on. And he is going to be talking today about the new perspective on Paul. So I'm going to let that throw you. We'll uh, have him kind of break it down for us and explain what that is. But Dr. Roach is the editor of the Journal of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. He holds a Ph.D. from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Theology and Philosophy of Religion. 
an undergraduate degree from Southern Evangelical Seminary. During his doctrinal studies, Dr. Roach studied hermeneutics, biblical theology, systematic theology, and epistemology. His dissertation focused on Carl F.H. Henry's epistemological approach to hermeneutics, culminating the dissertation titled Hermeneutics as Epistemology, a Critical Analysis of Carl F. Henry's Epistemological Approach to Hermeneutics. Well, that's a mouthful, folks. A lot of 50-cent words in there. Dr. Roach currently teaches adjunctively at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and serves as a worldview trainer for Focus on the Family's Truth Project. He's also the co-author of Defending Inerrancy, uh, affirming the accuracy of scripture for a new generation, which received endorsements from J.R. Packer, uh, R. Albert Moeller, Jonathan MacArthur, J.P. Uh, Moreland, and others. And we actually interviewed uh, Dr. Roach actually on this book in the past, and you can find that interview uh, up on our page. He's la- uh, lastly, he's contributed to the works uh, The Jesus Quest, The Danger from Within, a revealing book on the contemporary drift of many evangelicals from the complete historicity and total inerrancy of the New Testament, which is a great book, by the way. Dr. Roach, good to have you, sir. Good to be here. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, Devin. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get uh, involved in apologetics and theology? Well, I got involved in theology and apologetics shortly after my conversion. I was born and raised in Iowa in a small town called Salem, Iowa, into really a very split family. My mother's side of the family was pretty strongly Roman Catholic, and my father's side of the family, for a number of years, really had no church affiliation. So growing up with my mother, I was surrounded by Roman Catholicism. It's one of those where we had Catholic priests in the family. We had Monsignors in the family. We had pretty strong Catholics throughout the entire family on there. So I decided shortly after when I became a Protestant, I had to become very much aware of what I believe and why I believe because I was the first Protestant in my family. So that's one of the issues that drove me to start studying theology. However, as time went on, I moved away and I actually started working on a church in Chicago in a community there called Cabrini Green, which was a Section 8 housing right in the heart of the city. In fact, if you would have been there about 100 years prior, it's the old stomping grounds of um, the Italians were there, and Al Capone was his old stomping ground. But while ministering there, I was faced with the fact that there were numerous questions I couldn't answer. And I either had to stop sharing my faith and stop trying to actually disciple people within the church. Sometimes I think people forget that within the apologetics movement, that um, it's not just about unbelievers, it's the church that we sometimes have to work with. It drove me into theology and apologetics. So I was pushed into it by demand and necessity, not necessarily out of just this desire one day, out of just wanting to fulfill my sort of scholarly delights, as some might say. So I really had to for the sake of my own defense of what I believe. Interesting. So uh, you say you, you grew up in a family with a lot of Roman Catholics. 
Yes, I had Catholic priests in our family. We went to mass. We had Catholic school. Well, I didn't go to Catholic school. That would have been too far of a drive for us. But most of them, I was actually one of the first in my family to not be raised within a Catholic school. And I was actually the first Protestant in my family, which did not fare too well with a lot of them. And then one of the uncles that was in my family, he was the Monsignor over much of the eastern region of Iowa. So if an individual, say, attended a Catholic church from Cedar Rapids to Mount Pleasant and around, he would have been the individual over seeing the, the show in many respects. So I grew up very much aware of the ins and outs, the the doctrinal aspects and the fact that sometimes even in the pews the, the reality is, is that even their doctrine works down and can be twisted even in the pews. There's no uniformity in that sense across all Catholics across the board. It's just it sounds really good but it never really flushes itself out in the pew. And the best example is, I mean look right now in the news what's going on. We see individuals talking about the big split that's gonna happen over same sex marriage from the Catholic Church being led up by no one else other than the Pope. So there's clearly divergences within it um, that's seen across the boards, and that's what I had to face shortly after my conversion. And one of the key issues was the doctrine of justification. Well, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, seems as I don't I don't know if I would say lately, but it definitely seems within the last oh what fifty years, seventy years, uh, maybe I don't know, maybe since Vatican II, seems to be quite a lot of discussion on the doctrine of justification, and um, I think I think a lot of the debate seems to kind of go around whether or not um, it is essential to the gospel. As you know, uh, R.C. Sproul has written uh, different works on it, as well as others, saying, uh, kind of quoting Luther about uh, the doctrine of sola fide being where the church stands or falls, doctrine of justification stands or falls. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I completely agree with you. Um, the only thing that I would push on is I don't think that it's necessarily a debate that's been going on just for 50 years. It's The sure. doctrine of justification is something that's been going on since Genesis yeah. chapter 3, shortly after the right. fall, and the means by which God is redeeming humanity, the, the means and the avenue of a Savior. But, you know, when we look throughout the history of the church, we can look to the early church and see that Paul had individuals that he was working against and pushing against in the Galatian controversy. The book of right. Romans is a clear exposition of the doctrine of justification. Even Jesus discusses the doctrine of justification. You know, in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we see the clear phrase, and this man went away justified. And we'll get into some of what that means later. But what you're really driving at is really the watering down of the divide between Roman Catholics and Protestants probably over the last 50 years yeah. or so. And that, we recognize that's, that. Is that... Yeah, what that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. That's, yeah, I did not word it very well, but that that is exactly what I mean. It seems to be, you know, Roman Catholics had a very sharp uh, distinction. I mean, they're, they're down to Council of Trent. Council of Trent really didn't seem to make much bones about it. I mean, it's very clear on what they, how they view faith alone, etc. Uh, and Protestants seem to be pretty strong on their views, uh, sticking with the solas. But it seems as though, um, especially within the last 50 years, and I don't know if it's just in America or 
or what, but it just seems as though um, those walls seem to, especially within the Protestant circles, seem to have really come down quite a lot. I agree. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of the people are well-trained in the historic doctrines, both on Roman Catholicism side and the Protestant side. You know, So I don't think that it's necessarily within the, the leaders of the movement pure ignorance on either side. I believe that both right. are very much aware of what each other is claiming. Now, there is a level that does hit the, some seminarians and within the churches where the individuals involved frankly just have not read the original document. You know, they're off studying maybe too much philosophy and doing apologetics in that sense, and they never take the time to grudge through the historical documents that brought them to this day. And the situation that you're particularly talking about was most likely the rise of evangelicals and Catholics together, ECT that they would call it, that broke out shortly after the inerrancy debate, because when individuals thought they were solid on their the text of Scripture, then the the debate on what should we do in light of the fact that we're seeing a greater pressure and influence of secularism, and what should we do in our culture? Should we lock arms with Roman Catholics, as the the statement would say that, you know, our Catholics and brothers, sisters in the sense that we have amongst one another? And the debate that arose between key individuals, and you mentioned R.C. Sproul as one of them is, is, you know, the, the issue is, is that, yes, we both can affirm that Jesus Christ died for our sins in more sense, but we have a completely different understanding, especially in the Apostles' Creed at that point, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And is it Jesus died a complete, satisfactory atonement for our sins? Did Jesus Christ, maybe as the liberals might say, died as a moral example and showing how through that means we can triumph over our sins? Did he do what the existentialist theologian said, that he demonstrated what it's like to go through an existential crisis and bear perfect relation with God in that sense? Or is it the Catholic doctrine of justification in which they do affirm that Jesus Christ died for their sins, but doctrine of justification stretches beyond that in many respects, and one must partake in the sacraments, and I think you've discussed this in numerous times on even in the past month or so, what the Catholic doctrine of justification is. So I don't want to spend too much time on it, but we realize that this debate has feigned and just the flames have been growing higher and higher over the last number of months and years on this, which actually created a split within evangelicalism. And I very much sided with Sproul on this, that we have a different understanding of the gospel than Roman Catholics, and because of that, we may be able to lock arms with a Roman Catholic when it comes to abortion, but not do our mutual fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're doing it as humans and individuals that are working within this political state, and I think that's how we should look at it, whether it be marriage, abortion, or feeding of the poor in that respect. But we have no true gospel ministry amongst one another. Okay, so that brings up another point. Let me give you a little pushback here. So I'm going to say that gospel is 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died, buried, rose again. Uh, if you believe in that, then you're you're a Christian. And sola fide, why it may be a, a doctrine that is true, is not a doctrine that is essential to the gospel. Okay. So therefore, we'll um, as the fullness comes in at the end. But I think really what it is, I would say, well, if someone just had 1 Corinthians 15, 
sure, that sounds great, but even there we have this idea that it says, yes, brothers, I remind you of the gospel, and he clearly expects them to know it, which I preach to you, which you receive. So we see that the gospel is not something that individuals make up on their own. It's a received doctrine in that sense, and upon which they stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So even in this passage, we see one can falsely believe the gospel. They can believe in vain even here. We realize that he gave us the gospel here that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the what? In accordance with the scriptures. Where do we look to understand what the substitutionary death of Christ means and the confirms of it and the confines of it? We look to the scriptures. Now, my first statement is if somebody just looked at this passage, I could say, all right, I see what you mean. But remember, Paul had very, very strong statements outside of the First Corinthians passage. In Galatians, if an individual added one work under the gospel, he declared it a heresy and anathema and broke fellowship and said that it was a false gospel there. He also discusses the nature of works righteousness in most of the epistles, especially when he's getting into Philippians and talking about a works righteousness that he had coming out of fair, his pharisaical background, considered it dung. So I think it's really somebody just focusing on one or two scriptures to the exclusion of the totality of the Pauline corpus. If somebody's going to make that sort of lackadaisical kind of claim, I would say. There's much more to it. Salvation is not really just believing that Jesus died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. Remember, even in the book of James, oh, you believe that God is one. Great. Even the demons believe and shudder. And Jonathan Edwards gave a phenomenal sermon on that, where the logic of his argument was, if the devils can believe it, that's not a mark of salvation. What is a mark of salvation? It's not just you believe in God, or you believe in just a general resurrection, or Jesus generally died on the cross, because can't all of the demons do that? It's being born again, and what must be done in order to be born again? Well, we see in the text of Scripture, it's a belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone, marked by the persevering fruits of righteousness throughout the totality of one's life. So I think it's just that they have such a simple understanding of the gospel that it just doesn't ring through. Well, let's look into this a little bit. Um, talk to us a little bit. What were the what was the reformers' view of the doctrine of justification? And, and maybe okay. I don't want to take a minute just to share a little bit about uh, some of the issues that were going going on at the time and why this issue even came up for such a such a debate. Okay. Well, let's just start with an easy notion of what we're in by justification. I think a simple way to do it is to go back to the confessions in this sense. We know that we can go to the text of Scripture on this, but the confessions put it in the language of our day in order to rightly understand it in that sense. So we ask this, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So the Protestant doctrine of justification is getting at many notions. It's a part, it's one where a legal declaration is taking place for the forgiveness of our sins. And 
that must take place in order for us to be accepted right before God in his sight. We realize God is holy, God is righteous, and how can a righteous, holy God allow sinners into his presence? And the answer from the Protestant is, well, he pardons their sins and accepts them righteous on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness, not a righteousness that's of their own. It's actual righteousness of Jesus Christ that has to be received by faith alone. And now we understand the debate of this that's taking place, and if one looked at the larger Westminster Confession or Catechism or even the London Baptist Confession at this time, we see it's a difference of, yes, we see that God is pardoning sin in some sense, but it's not through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not through a legal declaration. It's through a a means of infusion, and it's a process. So there's two different ideas of justification that's going on there, which will help us get to the new perspective here soon. The issues that were going on during this time is that the Catholic doctrine of justification was being taught. And Luther, we remember, and as you've done in previous podcasts here, he was going through the text of Scripture and realized that justification was by faith alone. The righteous shall live by faith. And the clear passages in Romans and especially Galatians, when you see works of the law contrasted with faith in Christ. Now, works of the law isn't just the ceremonial law. It works of the law, when used in the Pauline corpus, is the law as a whole. It's its unity. And we're going to discuss that highly when we get to the new perspective here. So Paul is looking at, is one saved by works or by the faith in Christ's righteousness alone? And that's one of the key contrasts that comes about. And we just see the historical situation bringing that along so much that the reformers started to give an argument that could go something like this. Justification by faith alone is essential to the gospel. And the gospel is essential to Christianity and to salvation. And the gospel is essential to a church's being a true church. And to reject justification by faith alone is to reject the gospel and to fall as a true church. The point is, the reformers concluded that when Rome rejected and condemned sola fide, it condemned itself and, in effect, ceased to be a true church. So that was really some of the historical debates that were going on there. I know that this is a very surface-level approach to it, um, because we're here to talk about the new perspectives tonight. So, All right. Well, let's talk about that. What is the new perspective of Paul? Okay. Well... Here's a few things on here. You know, when individuals discuss the new perspective on Paul, I think they're misled by the definite article, the new perspective on Paul. And the reality is there is not a monolithic definition of the new perspective. Rather, it is a bundle of interpretive approaches to Paul, some of which are differences in emphasis, and others are completely antagonistic to one another. You know, the new perspective on Paul sometimes is really a misnomer because not only is there not one new perspective, it's a broad movement, it's really not even a new perspective on Paul as the individual. Instead, it should be labeled the new perspective on Judaism and its relationship to the Pauline literature, not necessarily Paul himself. The debate centers around the way extra-biblical literature literature from the Second Temple period and their, quote, particular pattern of religion, end quote, 
must inform our understanding of righteousness, particularly in the Pauline epistles. Consequently, the new perspective on Paul for a new reading of the Pauline literature, not for a new understanding of the man himself. Is that making sense? Absolutely, yep. It it, uh, absolutely does. Now, another... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go go right ahead. I'm just going to... Because the the key issue that they're trying to drive at is, is that, you know, they're trying to understand religion from a sociological perspective within the new perspective, first and foremost. And you notice how I said that they're trying to understand second literature as a pattern of religion. And by pattern of religion defined sort of positively, it's the description of how a religion is perceived by its adherence to function, how getting in and staying in are, quote, understood is what they're trying to understand here. So what they're trying to understand is how did this group of individuals during this time period function and live? How do they view these doctrines, especially the, the notion of righteousness? especially the concept of works of the law, because Paul is a product of that particular pattern of religion. He would have been a participant in that pattern of religion. The Pharisees would have been. Jesus was born into this. So what they're trying to say is, is that one must read Second Temple literature and Paul in light of that pattern of religion in order to understand Paul's epistles. And consequently, what they're arguing is one shouldn't understand, say, the backdrop of the Reformation, but against this large notion that they call covenantal gnomism and the fullness of what that What's, is. Give us, give us um, that term again, Bill. Give us that, give us that term again, called covenantal. Covenantal, called covenantal gnomism, gnomism coming from namos or law, and we're understanding – What's the relationship between covenant and law and its patterns or structures that are coming about in that sense? So in short, what they're trying to do is understand a sociological approach to Second Temple literature, which bears the marks of covenantal gnomism, they claim, and how Paul's writings must be understood in light of that. That's a basic element of what's going on within the new perspective on Paul. Now, how we got there is usually the bigger issue because we have to study sort of the history of hermeneutics in order to see the, the function of how that gets to the the 20th century debate that's taking place. All right. Uh, talk to us maybe a little bit about who are some of the main players in the New Paul perspective. Okay. Um, as we push back to it, I think some of the key individuals would have been um, Dunn was one of the big ones, Sanders, and N.T. Wright, but probably one of the key figures that we can look at for just a second was Sanders' work that he brought about, and in particular, E.P. Sanders was trying to look at the Second Temple literature for that pattern of religion known as covenantal gnomism. And here are some of the things that he looked at and some of the things that he concluded from his reading. And there are a few points Um, We can summarize them afterwards, but he's trying to say things like this. God has chosen Israel. That's what we find. The people believe that during that time period. And he has given them the law. And 
the law implies a few things. First of all, it implies God's promise to maintain the election of Israel and the requirement to obey. Now, one thing just off of this, it's not necessarily absolute, perfect, legalistic obedience. There's more of a general intent to obey the law as it's come about. And another thing that they concluded from that is that God rewards obedience and punishes transgression. And the law provides for means of atonement, and the atonement results in a maintenance or reestablishment of the covenantal relationship. Lastly, all of those who are maintained in the covenant by obedience, atonement and God's mercy belong to the group which will be saved. An important interpretation of the first and last point is election and ultimately salvation are considered to be by God's mercy rather than human achievement, according to this movement. Because some of the things they're trying to argue is that it's not a legalistic view, it's not a completely works-based view. They're trying to say there's an element of grace within this view. There's an element of faithful works and obedience coming about because that's what covenantal nomism is. In short, they're arguing that God entered into covenant with his people by grace, but one must keep covenant or keep law in order to remain in covenant with God. So works are maybe not so dependent on getting in, but for end-time justification, works are absolutely necessary within a covenantal perspective. You see some of the elements that are coming about? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. You can kind of see where some of the uh, uh, disputation is, is starting to arise. And here's, as we're looking at the disputation, you know, Devin, you've had debates on your show and you've had people interact. And we realize that one strong element of debate is not just the, the logic of the argument. It's rhetoric that one can bring. And I'm not talking about just political rhetoric where one individual spouts off, you know, something about another individual's character or looks or so forth. It's, um, a debate point might be, have you read the book? Have you read the literature? Have you read it in its original languages? Have you read it and the secondary literature surrounding the primary literature? And one of the things that E.P. Sanders it makes him just such a difficult individual to interact with is he will look back at numerous individuals and say, well, have you read the literature from the Second Temple period? Have you read it in its original languages? Have you read the commentaries on the literature that are coming from that time period? And naturally, most people say no, no, and um, no, because it's just such a difficult topic to address. And he's going to say, well, I have. And this is the pattern that I've seen develop during this time period. And because of that, I think we should have a new reading of the Pauline literature. Now, right. evangelicals, is this making sense? One of the things that he's really pushing back against and why it's making it really the scholarly scholars debate, because one has to be so fluent in the original languages in order to kind of pull it off. Let's do this. Let's let's uh, take a break here and uh, go to our first uh, commercial break and give people a chance to uh, get up and get a drink or whatever. Uh, folks, we're taking your calls at uh, 760-542-3907 if you've got a question about the new Paul perspective or uh, we'll just 
Bill, we can open it up, I guess, just for the doctrine of justification, kind of the Protestant view. What's, uh, is that, let's that okay with you? The new let's keep talking about the new perspective more, because I don't want to um, deal with questions yet, because I think there's a lot more we can deal with on just the history. Okay. I want to discuss sort of the, how do we get from Luther to um, N.T. Wright and all the, the issues that are between, because I think once that builds, it'll settle in a lot of the questions. Okay, that works. All right, folks, stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. We will be back. We're going to continuing our uh, section here on the New Paul Perspective. Dr. Bill Roach is with us and, and kind of uh, leading us through this kind of confusing and difficult topic. But uh, stay with us, and we will be back. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. Spiritual rebirth is the work of God. When Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 about being quickened by the Holy Ghost while we're dead in sin and trespasses, he's talking about regeneration, which is a supernatural work. It is a work done from above by the immediate power of God, and it is something that only God can do. You cannot make yourself be reborn. Any more than Lazarus, could have brought himself out of the tomb. Just as you did not do anything for your natural birth except be born, so your rebirth is a matter of the mercy and grace of God. For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. The age-old question, has God said? That question has echoed into the 21st century, and still today many people question the reliability of God. And as Christians, we hear that the Bible is not reliable. How do you respond to somebody who says, Dr. Geyser, the Bible is not reliable? Well, my response is, um, God can't err. The Bible is the Word of God, therefore uh, the Bible cannot err. So if you're going to deny that conclusion, you have to deny one or more of those two premises. So tell me, uh, can God err? The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. You know, Romans 3, 4. The Bible says uh, it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6:18. The God who cannot lie, Titus 1, 2. So if God can't err, and the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Jesus said it's the Word of God in, in John 10, 34 and 35, and Matthew uh, 15, uh, 1 to 5. He said, you do exalt your traditions above the Word of God, and the Word of God cannot be broken in John 10, 35. But if the Bible is the Word of God, then God can't err, then the Bible can't err. Now to ask him one more question. If God is omniscient, if he knows everything, how many mistakes can an omniscient mind make? An omniscient mind can't make any mistakes, not in geography, not in history, not in science, not in anything. Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, then write it down. There aren't any mistakes there. All right, folks. Thank you for joining us again. We're back here with Dr. Bill Roach looking at the new Paul perspectives and uh, kind of working through some of these difficult questions. Um, 
let's look, I guess, uh, have we have we kind of tackled who were some of the key figures in the historical movement? Uh, how about the 20th century? Some of the leaders, I guess, around oh. today. Okay. Um, some of the 20th century figures that we know who are of most importance would be individuals such as Christer, sorry, those German words, Stendhal and E.P. Sanders and James D.G. Dunn and N.T. Wright. Um, many of them, the best way to understand their influence is really to see what they're kind of pushing back against. And like we've said earlier, the issue they're saying is that Paul shouldn't be understood against the backdrop of the Reformation in the debate, but against Second Temple Judaism, in particular covenantal gnomism, which they claim was not legalistic or focusing upon merit and works righteousness. Therefore, we shouldn't read our debates with Roman Catholicism back into the first century. We're calling for a whole new reading of the Pauline literature. Now, some things before we get into the particulars of the individuals, we have to just rightly recognize the influence of really higher critical thought that's come upon them. Many of them are understanding scripture according to a pattern of religion or sociological approach or the fancy phrase many of them will say is you have to read it the way they would have read it. Um, And conversely, many of them are denying the special revelation of scripture. In fact, a lot of them are following within the tradition of maybe Bauer or um, a Schweitzer and they're pushing back against maybe should we read it according to its Jewish backgrounds or maybe its, its Greek backgrounds. And they're trying to find a, a core to the Pauline thought. And they're trying to, some of them say, the core of Pauline thought is not a judicial understanding of justification. And another means by which they get to that is, is they start to deny what was known as the traditional Pauline corpus. Many advocates of the new perspective, because of their higher critical background and their, the influence of the Tubingen school, they don't think Paul wrote all of the letters ascribed to Paul in our traditional Bible. So when you look at something, say, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it's getting to the declaration, for you are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest no man shall boast, they can either deal with you sort of toe-to-toe on the exegesis, or they can say, that's not really part of the Pauline corpus. So for a lot of them, you can't point to every verse that you're traditionally used to pointing them to. And they stick to some of the main sort of what were known as the Haupt brief or the chief letters of Paul, and they accepted books such as Galatians and Romans, but if they don't see the Jew and Gentile conflict, they sometimes rejected those books outright. So that really helps us understand sort of the influence of a, of a Kaisman or a Boltmann. But one of the key figures that we've already discussed was E.P. Sanders. And he accepts a lot of these sort of presuppositions going to the text, and that's how he worked when he did his extensive study of Second Temple Judaism and some of the tenets he was getting at that we were saying is that election is by God's grace. But it's also, he claims, sometimes grounded in the merits of the patriarchs and their foreseen obedience. And he pushes back against the idea that the rabbis gave no evidence or concern with the law's demand for 
perfect obedience. He says, you know, it's more just the general intent. Are you willing to obey the law and its, its mandates? And some of the means that they started to look at here is that obedience here did require an atonement, and one could look to things such as repentance and sacrifice and suffering and death for that atonement. One could be assured of their salvation by virtue of membership within sort of the covenant people of God and the participation of the law, if accompanied by intentional obedience. However, Sanders and others, they each disagree over what constitutes covenantal obedience. So are we starting to see some of the elements that are coming about here for building? See why I'm saying it's the scholarly scholars debate, because one not only has to be aware of Second Temple Judaism, one must have an understanding of the relationship of Bauer to Kaisman and Kaisman to Boltmann and Boltmann to Sanders and where Sanders is pushing back against Boltmann's judicial understanding and he's argued for a covenantal understanding and both are pushing back against the reformers understanding that's coming about. So we're trying to make these clear lines between them. So we're actually critiquing as close as we possibly can the new perspective on Paul. So I'm giving just general declarations of what individuals like Sanders might claim. I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but we can go into lots of detail about each individual here. Um, I'll, I'll leave that to your discretion, uh, whatever you think okay. needs to be uh, added. Um, did you want okay, to particularly... Think... Go ahead. Okay. I do think we need to spend a little bit more time on E.P. Sanders, then. Um, and then we'll look at Dunn, and then we'll look at Wright. Because when we start to see the contrast between them, we can give a broad notion of the, the new perspective. But like I said earlier, there are, there's no such thing as the new perspective. It's more this the plurality of perspectives that come about. Now, one of the things that E.P. Sanders was keen upon is he argued that Paul could not have disagreed with Judaism on soteriological grounds. He says Paul didn't disagree with the Jews based off of the doctrine of justification or soteriology. And he starts to argue that Paul never believed Judaism was inherently faulty in its capacity to provide salvation to its participants. Paul also, technically speaking, and listen to this, this is a key point for many individuals within the new perspective, Paul did not have an actual conversion experience. Rather, Paul had a, a realignment of his notion of how Jews and Gentiles functioned with one another. So justification is not so much how is one cleansed and made righteous from their sins as it is one of the ecclesiology. How should Jew and Gentile function? How should they relate? See how this is a totally different understanding of justification than that which came out of both the Roman Catholic and the Protestant side of justification. Because even the Roman Catholic says that justification is a means by which God is maybe working you to be righteous through the infused righteousness of an individual in this sense. Whereas the Protestant mm-hmm. is saying it's a declaration of righteousness. Here, they're saying, that's not what justification is. Justification is about creating the one new body of Jew and Gentile. Right. The issue is, how does one enter into that process? And for them, one must enter in through to the covenant, through God's unconditional election, they would claim, but one remained in covenant by doing certain works. Now, it wasn't all outright works righteousness, but one must Keep the covenantal nomism, they must claim. 
In particular, Sanders claims one must enter the covenant by baptism. And once an individual enters the covenant, then membership provides salvation. And one displays obedience in order to remain in covenant. Now just think about what he's claiming at this point. You cannot be saved unless you enter into the covenant. What's the means by which you enter into the covenant? You must be baptized. So like a baptism Baptism is an essential part of justification or becoming part of the people of God within this system. I mean, that differs radically both from a, um, say, a a Protestant, such as a Presbyterian, and their notion of infant baptism. Yeah, they may hold that one is, in a sense, coming into covenant, but I don't think they're going to say the individual saved simply because they have been baptized into covenant. Whereas, again, some advocates in the new perspective, E.P. Sanders in particular, he does claim that. And that's a radical difference even from our other Protestant brethren who have a different understanding of baptism in that sense. The point that he's trying to claim is that Paul faults Judaism not necessarily because of its sociology, but because of the fact that it's just not Christian. It doesn't allow for a place of Jew and Gentile. Specifically, he is faulting Judaism with respect to its notions of righteousness. In particular, he says that Judaism does not see righteousness, and he's claiming as a, um, he does not see righteousness as a maintenance term, but as an entry term. How does one enter into this covenant process that's coming about? So he's denying the judicial aspect, and he's trying to argue for how does one participate in the covenant and participate in Christ, which is keenly different from the classic Protestant doctrine of justification. So, do you have any questions on this as we want to push through? Do we want to continue on to James Dunn? I have a lot of material, and I don't want to fly through it. I know we've got two hours here. So. Yeah, go ahead and, and you said you were going to hit uh, highlight some of the other couple of the other people. So go go right ahead. Okay. Once we have this paradigm in place, I think it helps us greatly. Um, sure. So we look at Sanders, who's probably the most influential um, Second Temple literature scholar. However, the second key individual for the modern adherence to it is James D. G. Dunn. And Dunn served as the Lightfoot Professor of Divinity at the University of Durham. And like the other advocates, he still calls for a reading of Second Temple Judaism, much in agreement with Sanders' notion of covenantal gnomism. That's going to be a a fairly strong unifying theme between all the advocates. For him, however, Dunn claims the purpose of the law is to serve as a boundary marker within Judaism. It reinforces Israel's sense of its distinctiveness, and it distinguishes Israel from the surrounding nations. So the function of the law is to um, show the difference between Jew and Gentile. So think of it in this sense. When we read that, for you are not saved by works of the law, they're not understanding it as one keeping it as a merit-based type or this rule and regulation. is One isn't saved simply by just being Jewish by having the Jewish boundary markers that are coming about. But by faith in Christ that unites Jew and Gentile. Works of the law for them are not good works in general or an attempt to amass merit, but it's a pattern of obedience by which the righteous individuals maintain their status within the people of the covenant. And this is evidenced by doing things such as 
keeping Sabbath, circumcision, food laws. The point is this. Dunn and Sanders disagree over what does works of the law mean. And Dunn differs from Sanders very much on this point. In particular, they don't all have a monolithic understanding of works of the law and how much boundary markers function into it. But for Dunn, he really does think that it gives a distinct boundary marker and that one must uh, forego those boundary markers in order for righteousness of the covenant coming to the people and the unifying of Jew and Gentile to take place. Again, another key difference between them. Now, he's saying that when Paul is writing his letter to the Galatians or he's writing his letter to the Romans, Paul's critique then is directed at individuals who would, in strong pride, cling to certain boundary markers to the exclusion of Gentile believers. He is not concerned, they say, to address persons who are striving to obey the law and are attempting to meet the divine moral standards in order to be justified. Instead, if you aren't eating with an individual simply because they haven't been circumcised, shame on you. But you're not doing anything wrong if you're trying to keep those markers, per se. There's nothing wrong with that. The, the, the issue is you're not creating the, the true ecclesiology or the true Jew and Gentile coming together. You're not functioning right in the, the plan of God in that sense. So in that sense, it's a radically different understanding of how works of the law function. Works of the law, according to this idea, is not a collective whole. It's usually a ceremonial aspect. Are you keeping the ceremonial aspects of the law? And you're slapped on the wrist, not necessarily for breaking the whole law, but by, as I was saying here, uh, clinging to certain boundary markers to the exclusion of certain Gentile believers. And in a sense, some kids can't come play with you. They don't play in your game because they don't participate in your rules. And that's what they're trying to get at with the notion of works of the law. Now, he, he presses on, and they start to also deal with, Dunn does, because he's more of a systematizer of this issue. E.P. Sanders did the, the nitty-gritty work of Second Temple literature, and they're building off of this. Now they're trying to make a, a biblical theology and systematize what they're trying to claim. And he specifically tries to look at this notion of righteousness and, and that type of language, but what might also be called the depao, or righteous, either the verb or the noun and so forth, language found in the New Testament. And for Dunn, he claims that righteousness language is not fundamentally forensic. For him, it's relational, and it's transformative, pointing us to the initiative of God, he would say. And against Sanders, he does not see righteousness language as merely a, a, a transfer terminology. But the point that we need to look at is this. When they're reading the notions of justification and how righteousness is, it's not forensic. And you might say, well, why would they claim that? Why would they give up this forensic notion? They're going to say, well, again, boys, you're reading it in the wrong context. You're not reading it according to the right pattern of religion. The Greeks thought in forensic concepts, whereas the Jews were relational and transformative. So every time you want to import your judicial forensic aspects into it, and you're not seeing the relational coming together of people in this sense, whether it be God and his people or Jew and Gentile, you're not reading it according to the right pattern of religion, which is not according to Second Temple Judaism, 
and the proper notions of covenantal gnomism. Do you see why we started with covenantal gnomism now? It hangs and falls on this within their system. Do you have any questions up to this point, Devin? Maybe some of our readers, no. maybe you're, if it's going too much, I just want to make sure that I'm being clear here. Yeah, no, no, you're doing a good job kind of explaining some of the, the differences in the approaches, so... Okay, well, let's keep pressing through them. Let's look at how they he continues to understand this notion of righteousness. The righteousness of God, then, for him, is it's God's fulfillment of obligations. In other words, Dunn is fundamentally arguing that God's faithfulness is to his people. It's faithfulness to his relationship. So when we look at this, for one is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, or is it the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to keep covenant for his people. They're going to argue for the later. It's God's faithfulness that's key here. And when they seek to understand the notion of righteousness of God, they don't understand it as something God is... Um, it's not just what they might say is an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. They say it's both. Namely, God's activity is both the making of the covenant and the sustaining of individuals within the covenant. So with them, faithfulness is one of the key aspects because that rightly communicates the relational transformative view of the Hebrew understanding of righteousness. They apply that same type of thinking to the actual verb of justification. And for Dunn, he considers whether or not the verb to justify should be understood as to make righteous or to count righteous. Now, for him, he tries to combine the view, and he ought to review that incorporates both ideas. So it's, yes, you are declared in one sense, in the sense that you are already part of the people of God, but yet you are also made righteous over your sustaining faithfulness to keep covenant. See how it's a hybrid view? One is declared in the covenant, but yet one must remain in the covenant through acts of righteousness. So justification, then, for him, is conceived as a series of declarations that one is already in the covenant people of God. Consequently, the justified person is considered as one who is faithful to the terms of the covenant. However, the point that we must understand is this. Justification is then both initial, it happens once as you enter into covenant, it's repeated multiple times through God's saving acts throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, coming into the New Testament, culminating in what might be the, the final vindication of God's people. However, note this, it's not judicial. It's judicial in one sense in the initial, but it is repetitive and progressive or relational clear into the end. Big difference from the classic doctrine of justification taught by the reformers. Right. For the new perspective, they say salvation and the death of Christ are not understood um, and must not be conceived in a realistic sense, but nominalistically. Namely, they do not make actual declarations of reality. The various terms of curse, sacrifice, redemption, and reconciliation are mere metaphors for them. It's not priced as one all-sustaining death upon the hanging on the curse of the tree, namely for Christ's continued faithfulness 
which we must continue and emulate to keep covenant until the final vindication that comes about. And then you look at this and they say, how did they play, how did in particular God play this out with Paul as an individual? Well, Paul didn't actually have a conversion experience again. Instead, Paul had a change of mind from Jewish exclusivism, and now he's allowing the Gentiles to come to the people of God. For him, Paul didn't convert from Judaism. Instead, he, quote, rightly understood the place of the Gentiles in God's covenant. In the initial, progressive, repeated, and final vindication of God's people. But do you see the key differences that are now coming about between the views? Absolutely, yep. You can definitely definitely tell where the differences are starting to, to come out. So. so now let's finish with the final individual, because I want to close up your question here on some of the key 20th century leaders and figures. Now, Devin, without hesitating, when somebody the new perspective on Paul, who do they generally think of? Who's the main figure that comes to mind? N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright. I think God blessed him with, uh, you know, the accurate, you know, the N.T. because he's the leading New Testament scholar of our day. I mean, he's going to go down as the most prolific writer and author within New Testament studies within the 20th and 21st century at this point, or at least the early 21st century. Because sure. he leaves no stone unturned. He writes at a very scholarly level. He writes at a very popular level. He writes on practical theology. He writes on New Testament biblical theology. He has critical New Testament commentaries dealing with each verb and participle and so forth. And then he'll go out and give a lecture because he's the Bishop of Durham to a congregation. Point is, he's a man that wears many different hats. And because of that, he's been able to speak it to a broad variety of individuals. He has, in many respects, taken the very difficult concepts that we just discussed about covenantal nomism coming from Sanders and Dunn, and how, how do we understand this concept of righteousness and the word justify and the relationship between them. And he's furthered the conversation to the scholar and he's popularized it to the people. Now, what Wright tries to do is he builds upon the concept that we must understand these things upon Second Temple Judaism, but he, in his book, The New Testament People of God, he intentionally spent a whole host of pages in the very beginning arguing for a critical realist epistemology because it's foundational to his system. And what uh, he's trying explain, to do is... Explain, uh, explain that there for people okay. who kind of um, don't, don't know what that is. Okay, some of what they're trying to do is they're not pure relativist um, in the sense that it's just you have your truth and I have my truth and the neighbor has their own truth. They affirm that there is a, a pattern of reality in the external world. But what they're trying to bypass is what they're labeling as this enlightenment epistemology that focuses upon you know, objectivity and certainty and one is absolutely right and that theology is about making doctrinal propositions that must be systematized amongst one another. We see this all the time. I mean, the reality is if I were to throw on skinny jeans and stand on the stage with, you know, stage lighting, I could probably say the exact same thing and be a megachurch sort of emergent pastor. So that's what they're claiming. 
But um, which they're pushing back against that type of theology. I mean, that's what they're claiming in the sense. But Wright doesn't want to be in that camp. He wants to be a critical realist where he's going to say, yeah, we, we don't want to fall into this hard, rigid sort of epistemology. Rather, we want to recognize the, the real structures to reality, but there's a subjective element to it also. We as individuals bring our own historical situations and our own life situations and our own perspectives. So one can be right, but one cannot be certain. Proximate, but one cannot be objective. So his argument is, truth is not understood best according to systematic theologies, but according to story, according to narrative. And in that sense, he has bridged this gap between the postmodernists and most individuals, because we like to see how stories play out. Now, consequently, for Wright, what he does with this epistemology is he argues that stories underline all of our theological formulations and expressions, including Paul's theological formulations and expressions. So when we're reading throughout the New Testament, we see that Yes, there's a creation account, and God raises up the nation of Israel, who is supposed to keep covenant with the people of God in this sense. But we also see a strong, very strong emphasis upon exile motifs. And you know, they were not keeping the law of God, so God sent them off into exile. And Wright is very clear to go to a text such as um, oh, Daniel chapter 9, and the relationship of how the Messiah is going to function with the people of God. And he's arguing that we, in many respects, are still in exile today. And the role of Jesus is to keep the covenant. What the nation of Israel failed to do, Jesus Christ is that proposed solution. When Israel failed to keep covenant, according to covenantal nomism, Jesus was able to do. The New Testament writers looked to the Old Testament and the story of Israel, and they reconfigured that story around the person of Jesus. Now, Jesus is considered to be the proposed solution to the abiding problem of Israel's exile. For that reason, he claims, we should view early Christianity as another expression of, or species of, Judaism, although it's distinct in many other ways. The point is, is that we must find ourselves in Christ's covenant relationship and his faithfulness in our story in God's grand narrative and how that placates into us. Now, think about the implications of that. Righteousness is still understood in relational categories because it's how God is relating to us through this covenant. And for him, he claims that right understands the righteousness of God language as referring not only to a relational aspect, but it's God's own faithfulness to his covenant promises. This language, right believes, finds its background in, in much of the Old Testament, but the notion of covenant, law, court, and eschatology. Now, for Wright, he thinks when it discusses measures concerning righteousness, he argues consistently that when applied to Jews of Paul's day, this refers to a truncated covenant status focused on zeal, flesh, but namely their ethnocentric exclusivity. Um, righteousness is trying to overcome the Jew and Gentile divide that's coming about. The covenant overcomes those difficulties. And Wright then applies that concept to his doctrine of justification, which he sees as both a, a present reality and an end-time or um, 
an eschatological reality. And for pregnant justification, Wright claims it is God's declaration <clears throat> that one is already in the people of God. Now stop right there and think about that. Present justification is not that one has been forgiven of their sins and declared righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Instead, it's a doctrine pertaining to ecclesiology. What then is justification? It's you're a member of the people of God. Not that you have, as we said earlier, when we're looking at the Westminster Confession, as we you know, we sometimes remember the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. You see how they're changing the terms of the debate. Justification right. doesn't have to do with justification in its classic soteriological sense. It's the relational covenant-keeping declaration that you are not righteous in the sight of God, but members of the people of God. It's a totally different allotment in this sense. Present justification, then, is declared on the basis of future justification, which will be grounded on the believer's faithful obedience to the covenant. So you may be declared to be part of the people of God, but there will come a day of reckoning. And if you have not kept the um, the means in this sense, it's not wholesale merit-based for righteousness, but if you haven't kept covenant, then you will have a rough day at in-time justification or eschatological justification. See, what Wright claims is that Wright sees faith in present justification as that which evidences one is a true member of the people of God. For him, in this context, faith is counter to works of the law, which Wright sees preeminently as things such as circumcision or Sabbath and food laws. With respect to future justification, however, Wright will argue that faith and and faithfulness are to be understood synonymously. Namely, one must not only have faith, but they must remain faithful in order to be understood as keeping covenant in present justification and long-term end-time justification. See some of the differences here? And how this starts to apply is this. He will start to argue that concerning the death of Christ and justification, right will intentionally and explicitly repudiate the notion of imputation. You are, he denies the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he claims doesn't arise from Paul in corpus. It doesn't come from Paul's literature. It comes from those crooked-nosed uh, reformers who were twisting the Pauline literature because of their background with Roman Catholicism. And oh, by the way, it's not just those crooked-nosed those reformers, the Roman Catholics, got it wrong because their notion of justification isn't just God's covenant-keeping faithfulness, but they still had a righteousness notion in um, merit-based ideals, too. So he's pushing back against the whole Reformation, both the Catholic and the Protestant side. For him, when it comes to the death of Christ in general, right, we'll concede that we may speak of it in a sense of an atoning, propitiatory act. Nevertheless, right, is still consistently vague on what that actually means to the believer. So in one sense, he'll say, yes, Christ did die in atoning sacrifice to us, but just don't ask me to explain to you how that applies to the individual in detail and how that's actually applicable to the believer. And he looks at the death of Christ and attempts to apply it to 
law court analogy, so in one sense, but he's denying imputation in another. So consequently for him, one cannot speak in traditional terms of the pardon of the believer's sin by reason of imputation. For him, he believes that the death of Christ does not necessarily connect believers' experience by defeating the powers of sin and death. For him, Wright believes that Paul made a transition of a change in this sense that it's not of imputation, but of faithfulness. So conversely, how that works out in the life of Paul is Paul didn't necessarily change his allegiance from Judaism to Christianity. Rather, neither did he have an actual conversion experience. Rather, Paul is understanding what it means for the Jew, the apostle to the Jews, I mean the apostle to the Gentiles in particular, the role of the Gentiles in the people of God and being declared part of that people of God. Um, all right, as that's as good. As we should go. Yeah. yeah, that's that is that is good stuff. Let's do this. Let's take a break real quick, uh, folks. The number to call in is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. If you have a question about the New Paul perspective, seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Doctor Roach is here to answer your questions. Uh, when we come back, we will take a look at a couple things such as. Um, what, uh, how does the New Paul perspective view Roman Catholic doctrine of justification, as well as do, does the New Paul perspective advocates have a good understanding of Luther, Calvin, uh, and the Reformed tradition? So a lot more to come. Stay with us. And uh, again, 760-542-3907 is the number to call. We'd love to hear from you, so stay with us. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about particular bad philosophy was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries in winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said, I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. It has good results, uh, good philosophy, has good results. You can't know error without studying truth, but you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, well, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, 
you don't know how to apply the truth to the air and when the people were in air. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. All right, folks, welcome back, and thank you again for joining us on this edition of Theology Matters as we look at the New Paul perspective, and we have Dr. Bill Roach, who graduated from Southern Evangelical Seminary with uh, a degree in philosophy, as well as uh, got a doctorate there at Southeastern. Brilliant guy, and uh, just on a personal note, Bill's been a good friend of mine for for many many years, and uh, appreciate his uh, appreciate his friendship and uh, and all that he has uh, contributed to my own personal uh, growth in the faith. So uh, great having you on the show again, Doctor Roach. And uh, number to call in those who would like to ask questions: seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two. 3907. I think quickly before we were going to get to some calls, uh, we were going to talk a little bit about how the New Paul perspective views the Roman Catholic doctrine uh, of justification, as well as uh, the understanding of Luther uh, and and Calvin as well. So, Dr. Roach, are you there? Yes, I'm still here. I'm excited. So. All right. Well, well I'm we, going to turn, which turn, one you turn that over to you. Kevin, you want to look at are we looking at how the new perspective views Roman Catholicism and its doctrine of justification? That would be great, yeah. Well, that would be a great place okay. to start there. Well, here's one of the interesting things. Advocates of the new perspective on Paul are not a middle ground between Protestants and Roman Catholics. You know, if we start to understand any notion of merit or righteousness being that a price or the individual, that's not the new perspective. That's not even close to the new perspective. And in that sense, they, just as strongly as they oppose the Protestant doctrine of justification because of the imputation or sola fide, they also think that Roman Catholics got it wrong. Now think about this. They accept much of the literature of Roman Catholicism namely the 
the apocryphal texts and the extra-biblical literature that many of them will read. Um, but they don't read them the same way. In fact, when they say that the Protestant has misunderstood Paul because they're reading Paul according to the Roman Catholic debate, they're also claiming that we are, well, Roman Catholics in particular, are misreading the apocryphal literature. Why? Because they're reading that literature according to the Roman Catholic and Protestant debate. Instead, one must read it according to covenantal nomism that doesn't see any infused righteousness coming from mass or the sacramental notion of theology that's coming about. Both have fundamentally missed it in that sense. So, in one sense, the reformer holds out his right hand and they slap his wrist. And in another sense, the Roman Catholic holds out his hand and he slaps his wrist too and says, boys, both of you are misunderstanding merit. Boys, both of you are misunderstanding your literature. Why? You don't ground it in the pattern of religion that Paul first grounded his theology in, whether it be Romans, Galatians, or um, the apocryphal texts that are coming about in this sense, because they fundamentally misunderstood them. So they're slapping both of their wrists in that sense. So, in other words, the Reformation, both from Luther and the Counter-Reformation leading up to Trent, were a big waste of time. We shouldn't have even gone down that route. It was caveat of dogmatic theology superseding what they would label as biblical theology. And the contours of it, they say, led to a false debate. So what do we need to do? Not just throw everything away, but push aside the big points and say, they both misread him. Let's go back. Let's read Paul in his first century context. Let's read him according to this definition. Or as N.T. Wright would come right out and say, if it was good enough for Paul in his first time and for his advocates at that time, it's good enough for us at our time. So he's actually pushing back against both contours, but he's definitely not Catholic and he's definitely not a traditional Protestant in that sense. So in this, an interesting thing is, is that he, much like the Reformers, doesn't think that the extra-biblical literature teaches the Catholic doctrine of justification. So there's some key, key points there. Absolutely, yeah. So you're you're saying then that this perspective would also reject the Roman Catholic view as well. Exactly. They're saying that again. Their push would be, you know, we don't have to have the Roman Catholic Church in order to understand this literature. They're saying much of Roman Catholic theology is not working within Paul's pattern of religion or the Old Testament pattern of religion. Both of them have missed it. And why would they have missed it? Well, they're going to say, look at what happened during the medieval age. Right. They would have started to import things such as Greco-Roman ideas that came about or Greek ideals of how righteousness and justification were, which were contrary to the biblical text in that sense. So they're saying that both of them read it wrong. Talk to us a little bit about Luther and Calvin and, and kind of their views on that. Okay. Now, one of the interesting things is that 
the new perspective on Paul as much as it is able to deal with the Second Temple period, it seems to struggle when it comes to historic theology, in particular Reformation theology. Now, at one point in time, N.T. Wright would have claimed to have been a very hard five-point Calvinist early on in his career. D.A. Carson, wow. I believe some very key points along those lines. He would have been a strong advocate because that was definitely the theology of the Anglican Church in many respects that he was wow. trained in. And he, was, he was trained in. So Wright, ironically, he knew the view, but when he's confronted with it and asked to give clear, long doctrinal statements about it, many people start to say, he seems to not be reading them correctly. And in fact, one key piece of literature that anybody who wants to understand sort of the classic evangelical response to this issue that they must read is the book titled Justification and Variegated Gnomism, The Paradoxes of Paul, edited by D.A. Carson and O'Brien and Mark Seifer, that are coming about. In particular, what we should do is look in this chapter in particular to the key Reformation theologian, Timothy George, who is probably one of the best theologians on Luther in particular, and see all the fundamental ways that Wright and Sanders and others have just gone astray. They've read him out of context. They've read him in the worst possible light. And for that reason, they're misunderstanding him. They're misunderstanding the claim. So the point is, they're setting up a straw man of Luther's view or Calvin's view, and they're not actually responding to the views. And part of the book that they're trying to get at is maybe they're not responding to the classic doctrine of justification taught by the Reformers. Maybe they're falsely reading situations into it. And I think that's much of what that book is looking at. So the point that I'm driving at is this. They're really good in the languages, but they're not very good in historical theology. And I would say in my experiences and the classes that I've taken in graduate-level work in Luther and in Calvin and in the creeds, I think they're misreading them. And I'm not alone in that. I really think that I can stand very much with Timothy George and others to make that claim. Okay. Well, and that kind of gives, I guess, some, some of the historical context on that. Um Let's move on to the to this uh, the next question here. Is there anything up to now you want to clarify, or anything that you you want to add uh, before we move on to some of the next section of questions? I here? would, I would. You know, we've addressed the issue that they, in many respects, misrepresent Luther, Calvin, and the Westminster Confessions, and so forth. And <sighs> in that sense, they're critiquing other key figures and documents poorly. In that sense. Now, I think another issue that we need to look at is from an individual who's sitting in the pew looking at this debate, one, think about how many resemblances the New Perspective has to Roman Catholicism. And in particular, you know, instead of doing some sort of an ironic to that of the Matilda-like sort of priesthood, many have gone from the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church to the priesthood of this lawfully consensus of these New Testament scholars. You know, just like Christians during the Middle Ages, sitting in the pews, who needed the magisterium in order to interpret Scripture, 
Now you need the New Testament scholars to interpret all of the relevant Second Temple literature and all of its linguistic overturns in order to interpret the scriptures correctly. You went from needing the paradigm of Rome and its literature to now Second Temple literature and the authority of men like N.T. Wright, Sanders, and Dunn to interpret for you. In other words, you've gone from a Roman magisterium to a New Testament academic magisterium. And in that sense, they're functioning in the same way, in the same way. In addition, notice this. They're also trying to say that scripture must be reduced to the place not of an inspired and inerrant text, but merely reflecting the literature and all of its connotations of that particular pattern of religion at that time. They're downplaying the functional role of inspiration, and they deny the fact that the nature, content, and variety of revelation are exclusively God's determination. Instead, they're in many ways saying that the nature, variety, and content of religion are conditioned upon specific patterns of religion and sociological constructs of knowledge and religious ideals of that time. They're not saying that revelation is, in many respects, a, yes, it's a divine lightning bolt into the situation, and yes, there's a human aspect there, but God, in many ways, bypasses those to communicate the gospel message. Let me give you an example from a New Testament, I mean, an Old Testament illustration. You know, when we're reading the Genesis account, and you see that it's giving the order of the days that are coming about, and it talks about the greater light, and it's talking about the lesser light, have you ever wondered right. why it's not using the sun and the moon? They clearly had language for that. I mean, Joshua clearly had language for sun, and we clearly have notions of moon. But why did it use two different concepts? The people of that day understood them. Their pattern of religion during that time of day understood them. Well, it's because in the act of divine revelation, the Holy Spirit, in many respects, was going around specifically still communicating the same truth, but without accommodating to sun god worship or moon god worship. The creation account, according to the scriptures, is unique. Yes, there's similarities, but there's fundamental differences. And in that sense, I think many of the advocates of the new perspective have downplayed the functional authority, role, and nature of inspiration when it comes to the text of scripture. So that's kind of summarizing many of the, the functional connotations and roles of the new perspective before we sort of look at this notion of covenantal nomism as you were wanting to look at here next. So Yeah, well let's go ahead and move on to that next then. Let's go ahead and, and let you go ahead and, and talk about that for a bit. Okay. Well here's the interesting thing. If they're right and covenantal nomism is true in this sense and that, that is the monolithic pattern of religion from that time period, the case is closed. They've, in a sense, won. That's why, in order to respond to the new perspective, you really have to show two things, and two things in particular. One, you have to show that maybe not all of Second Temple literature teaches this covenantal gnomism, and two, maybe you've actually just misinterpreted Paul. So I think that's really what we need to spend a variety and the most of our time over the majority of our time looking at. Now, I have this quote here from D.A. Carson in his book titled Variegated Gnomism, which is considered probably the best evangelical response to 
to covenantal gnomism and the second temple literature. And listen to what he says here. Carson claims several of the scholars in variegated gnomism found that at least parts of their respective purporia could be usefully described as reflecting covenantal gnomism. Pause right there. We see covenantal gnomism during that time period. We see that aspect of righteousness fleshing itself out. We see that aspect of faithfulness and keeping covenant taking place. He's not denying that. However, there's probably the best line in the entire book. It's right here. Carson then goes on to claim, one conclusion to be drawn then is not that Sanders is wrong everywhere, but he is wrong when he tries to establish that his category is right everywhere. point is, you can point to elements within that literature where you find it's true. It's just not true in every piece of that literature. Carson rightly shows that it's quite reductionistic to claim it represents the whole body of literature. He claims that covenantal gnomism is misleading because deploying that one neat formula across the literature so diverse engenders an assumption that there is more uniformity in the literature than there really is. In addition, Carson goes on to claim that Sanders has erected the structure of covenantal gnomism as an alternative to merit-based theology. And at one level, he, Sanders seems to be correct. However, at other levels, there are explicit counterexamples. In other words, we can actually find merit-based theology being taught during the Second Temple period. Now, Sanders is known to very quickly dismiss the claim that actual obedience affects soteriology during Second Temple period literature. Namely, he is quick to dismiss any type of merit-based theology. But here's a couple of counterexamples. Now, during this time period, we find a piece of literature known as the Mishnah. And one of the rabbis in there, Rabbi Akaba, taught that the world is judged according to righteousness, but all is according to the majority of works that are to be done, whether good or evil. The point that he's trying to say is, is that we realize that God's going to judge the world. And how does he do it? As he talks about the majority of works, good or evil. And he uses this this parable, as he's going to get at in Akaba's literature, describes God as this great shoekeeper who carefully records moral debits in his ledger. And this shoekeeper will eventually send out his collectors the exact payments from the debtors, whether they like it or not, based on the record of their debts. And this parable concludes with saying, quote, the judgment is a judgment of truth and all is ready for the banquet. And the conclusion with the totality of the story, goes on to demonstrate that eschatological judgment is the focus of the parable and confirms that the parable illustrates the judgment according to the majority of works. This is what Akaba is trying to get at. So think of it in this sense, going back to our old logic example that we use. You know, if you're going to say all dogs have four legs and you find a three-legged dog out there, it really undermines the claim that all dogs have four legs. You can say some dogs have four legs, or the majority of dogs have four legs. And in this sense, one can't say all of the literature from this time period, covenantal gnomism. I can point to one right here. All you need is one, from the Mishnah, Rabbi Akaba. Now, we can also go and look at the fact that 
there are other literature from this time period. And we could look at elements from the Book of Tobit or the Wisdom of Ben Sirah, where they clearly taught based, merit-based theologies. In addition, we can look to several Qumran documents that also reflect a merit-based theory of the atonement. Lastly, you know, another thing that a lot of these individuals are looking at is, you know, no one's denying that a large amount of the literature reflects covenantal gnomism. However, many scholars fail to communicate particular texts that they're trying to see covenantal gnomism in are talking about nationalistic religion, not individuals per se. So, Devin, you see my point that I'm getting at here is that they're trying to apply nationalistic text to individuals and say that's how individuals function. And in addition, they're trying to say not all, they're trying to say, sorry, all of the literature makes these predications. And in fact, they're clear examples, like the Rabbi Akiva. Mm. And he teaches a merit based theology. Interesting. See, one could even go even further. One could look to first Ezra's, where it discusses Josiah's celebration of the Passover and Ezra's reforms and the important role of Ezra. And it's admitted that first Ezra's can be reconciled with Sanders' thesis. However, here's why it doesn't work. The text cannot be taken as a personal text. He's not talking about just individuals. It's talking about the nation. Hence, for that reason, it does not fit the typical mold of individual covenantal gnomism, and justification and righteousness, as advocates of the new perspective must claim, because they're using individual righteousness in all their examples. But these are nationalistic claims. One could also look at jubilees, and we find the exact same thing. So the point is, not only just one or two, but vast amounts of the literature from this time period are clear counterexamples to the thesis of covenantal gnomism. Good stuff. Very good stuff. Um, let's uh, let's look at the next question here. How does or what does the word justify mean in Paul? I guess that's kind of the crux of the of the issue, right? It's kind of where the rubber meets the road in the debate, so to speak. That's correct. I mean, it really does come down to what do words mean? How do they function in this sense? Um, and after you've thrown off the sort of the working paradigm of covenantal gnomism, we are left with that question. What does justify mean in Paul's literature? Now, one thing we have to look at is this. You know, when we look at the word justify, we see that Paul uses various terms throughout his literature. You know, we see him using justification in Galatians and in Romans. However, there's one problem with a lot of the references, though, at least to the average English-speaking individual who's attempting to interpret their Bible. They pick up their Bible and they see the word justification and they are just reading one basic understanding to it. Namely, the English language struggles to differentiate it the way they say the word justify or justification doesn't always match the Bible's notions of the terms. Let me give you an example. English-speaking individuals naturally believe that righteousness has a moral character about it. For us, it to be righteous is often defined as, say, a state of being in one's life. And in most individuals' common opinion, justification speaks of something legal in character. You know, they'll say justification is often said to be something done for us, while righteousness is something that's done in us. 
for many people, they say, well, righteousness is moral and justification is just legal, or so the English usage commonly goes. The point that I'm trying to say is, is that many people confuse the fact that, yes, English may use righteousness and justification as two different terms and two different concepts. However, that doesn't always correspond to the way the New Testament writers use those concepts. The fact of the matter is, there are not two different terms used in the Bible. The New Testament primarily that are translated as righteous and justification. There's only one term, or perhaps a, a family of terms that are used. You know, you have the adjective, the kaos, or the noun, dikaiosune, or the verb, dikao, and it is the translator's decision whether to render, you know, the dikaiosune as righteousness or as justification. Normally, the choice is made upon the basis of context. It would be rather awkward to use one or the other terms in certain situations. For example, it's easier to say, therefore having been justified, than it is to say, therefore having been made righteous. Similarly, it flows better to speak of receiving righteousness than it does justification. However, they're all from the dekao family of verbs. Now, one of the things that we shouldn't do is downplay the fact that at times the terms do speak of a moral or ethical quality. However, Protestants do not want to insist upon the idea that righteousness and justification always, in every lexical and textual instance, refer to the divine act whereby God legally declares the sinner to be righteous. We're not making that kind of claim. However, there are clear instances in the Old Testament, the Hebrew equivalent of the verb and the term justify is used in a legal sense. You know, Paul's use of the verb reflects the use of the Hebrew verb in the Old Testament. Namely, he's pulling from the Septuagint. And when Paul uses it, he's pulling from times when the Sithil form is used, and the Sithil refers to the forensic or judicial declaration that a person is just. So when Paul is using it in things like Galatians 2.17 or Galatians 3.8, and he's using the exact same verb and he's making quotations from the Old Testament, and the Old Testament using the Sithil Hebrew form, but yet when he's quoting from the Septuagint, and Paul's pulling it in, the point is the Septuagint recognizes the Hebrew legal form, and Paul recognizes the Hebrew legal juristic form, and that's how he's using it in his literature. As we keep going with this, other individuals recognize the Old Testament use of this term. In particular, you know, a lot of people will notice that in the Old Testament, in places such as Deuteronomy 25.1 or in First Kings, we find judges declaring individuals or the righteous innocent and they're condemning the wicked. Now, note, it wouldn't really make sense to say that the judges make these individuals righteous. These people were clearly wrong, and they've clearly done things that were contrary to the law of God. They're not making them righteous. Instead, they are pronouncing on what is in fact to be the case. If the judges are righteous, if the judges are righteous and they're declaring them righteous, what we're finding here is that the verbal idea of form is in the forensic realm. That's how they're using justification and righteousness. And Paul does not use the verbal form to know a righteousness forms us or makes us righteous. Therefore, 
up to the point that we're seeing in this argument, it can be assumed that Paul is arguing that a person is declared righteous, and they're not righteous by keeping works of the law. Now, let's flesh this out in the Pauline corpus. In addition to the fact that we can see that the Old Testament had notions of moral righteousness and forensic righteousness, it's a category that's there, we see Paul actually using it. Remember the, the key verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 33? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The legal setting of this text is clear. So the issue is whether anyone will bring a charge of condemnation against the believers on the day of judgment. God is represented as a judge here. And the believers are justified before him. Clearly, the term justified here means that God has declared believers to be in the right. The legal declaration of justification here can also be found in other Pauline literature, in particular like 1 Corinthians 4.4, where Paul claims, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby acquitted, or, as the ESD may say, justified. It is the Lord who judges me. Notice, God is the judge. God is acquitting or justifying him in this sense. Paul considers the day when he will stand before the Lord as the final judge. This text does not suggest that the Lord makes Paul righteous at the last day. Instead, what Paul teaches here is that the Lord declares he is righteous. That is, he announces to the world whether Paul stands in the right before him at the final judgment. But clearly, I mean, if we can go on and look at other instances here, there are strong texts in the New Testament coming from the Old Testament that Paul picks up on to give a judicial forensic declaration of righteousness. All right. And we can, well, that's, that's yeah. It's 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 a, it's a lot. It's a complex is, issue, and uh, you can see there's <laughs> there's definitely uh, a lot to it. Bill, you you actually gave this talk at uh, Calvary Church at the Apologetics Conference, right? I did. I gave it at the Sim- similar to this talk. And I'm actually getting ready to write some things for Themelios, the journal, on this very topic here soon. Journal of the Gospel Coalition. So, wow, that's interesting. Okay, what are I guess what are some of the bigger books out on this issue, kind of that promote this this uh, new perspective as well as, um, as well as some of the ones that uh, respond to it. Well, some of the main ones that you need to look at, anything by N.T. Wright is going to be clearly advocating for this. You know, probably one of his early seminal works on it was titled What St. Paul Really Said. And, you know, as we look at the what Paul of Tarsus, the real founder, sorry, was Paul of Tarsus, the real founder of Christianity. And he's arguing um, that Paul must be understood according to his covenantal notion. Um in that sense, anything by E.P. Sanders that's coming about Palestinian Judaism that's going to come in through here, um, a whole host of works by the three individuals. Now, there's been a huge pushback by evangelicals. If you pick up Doug Moo's commentary on Galatians or Romans, you'll find text by text by text 
interaction with this. Or really? you pick up Tom Schreiner's work on Galatians and Romans, or pushing back against them very strongly. And I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with them. Now, Devin, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, can you think of a writer who recently published a book on justification arguing against N.T. Wright, one of many people, but N.T. Wright in particular, in his doctrine of justification? Yes. A book that you recommended me uh, by Tom Schreiner on his book Faith Alone. It's a new new series of books coming out, uh, all dealing with the five solas that are going to be coming out over the next couple years. Exactly. This book probably, better than any of the others, presents at not a simplistic level, not at an overly scholarly level, namely he doesn't just endless amounts of Greek and Hebrew for you that he expects you to be able to read on the spot, the classic doctrine justification by faith alone. And I would actually recommend this book more than any other book because he presents the history of the view from a theological standpoint and an exegetical standpoint, and he defends it biblically. He goes to the text and says, does the text really say that? Um, but Probably the book that started the debate, one of the big debates on this, was one by um, John Piper titled The Future okay. of Justification, a response well, take, take, to Wright. Yeah, take a, take a minute or two and kind of talk about that debate between Wright and Piper. Okay. Um, as we know, Wright had a whole body of literature that was out there, and individuals were um, reading it, interacting with it, and... Piper, as the pastor, was receiving questions. What is this new perspective on Paul? What's going on here? And he started to slowly read the literature and interact with the ideas. And over a period of time, it resulted in this book, The Future of Justification. And it's his exegetical response to Wright's views. And he allowed Wright to read the book and he allowed him to interact with his literature before he published it. And it culminated in this publication, and it created a firestorm of controversy between what might be more traditional Reformed theologians and their doctrine of justification and advocates in a new perspective. Well, time went on, and Wright started getting some pushback from people, and he was being smeared and marred, and people thought poorly of him. He did what any other scholar would do. He responded, and that's his key book titled Justification. So the difficulty is is that one must read early literature from Wright, and then they need to read Burr, and then they need to read Wright's book titled Justification to understand the history of the debate that's come about. And okay. what Wright is saying is that, you know, you can keep going to the text and arguing or pointing here at this verb and that verb, but you're still missing it, boys. It has to be understood according to covenantal normalism. You just missed it. And he goes so far as to say that classic Reformed theology in this sense is as naive as believing in a flat earth. That's his analogy that he opens up his book with. So quite strong terms. So would you, would you because I've, I've talked to some people that hold this view, um, that would say, oh, yeah, people that hold the, the this view – uh, like Wright and them are definitely Protestants. Of course they are. Would you hold that view? Would you say that they are Protestant? And if not, why not? 
No, I wouldn't say that they're Protestant. Now, I say that with qualification because I wouldn't say they're Catholic either, even though they have very strong correlations there. They're not Protestant right. because they've given up the idea of Christ's imputed righteousness and sola fide. Those are the hallmarks of what it means to be a Protestant, and they've given those up. Um, based of all, also the whole first hour of this program here. Now, I say that with this qualification. They have a little bit of Protestant in them in this sense. They like to go to the original sources, and they have no fear of throwing an authority if they disagree with their exegetical conclusion. They truly want to go to the text and see what the text says, but their textual conclusions differ from all of the Protestant tradition or lineage in that sense. Protestants allow for tradition. We just don't see it as a uh, second government right. authority like that. Right, and right. So I would say, no, they're not Protestant. You, if you think that it's another view of Protestantism, well, they differ on merit. They differ on how the verb justify used. They differ on the nature of the substitutionary atonement and its functional role of it. They differ on the notion of a initial, repeated, and final justification that comes about. So in many respects, they differ on every key point. It's not Protestant for all of those very reasons that we talked about. Hmm. Strong words, but um, good. I mean, I think you've you've uh, you've backed it up with arguments and and that. So that's uh, that's good. Take now, a couple minutes. It's interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's interesting though when we actually look at the, the words themselves. You know what I'm finding here is is that there's a strong movement of individuals who kind of came out of these mediocre Protestant traditions. They probably were not taught the key issues. I can almost guarantee they do not know Greek um, or Hebrew in order to delve with it. And when they're presented with the fact that, what do you do with the Dakota family? And how righteousness and justification can be used intermittently at times. And they apply it to the text. I'm finding that they're just not doing their homework. They're not doing the under, underlying nitty-gritty work that must take place in order to rightly say that I've handled the Word of God correctly. And, you know, when we look at this, we can find elements of forensic justification that clearly put the new perspective out of the Protestant realm. Like, take, for instance, Romans chapter 2, verse 13. I believe it should be interpreted forensically as well. Notice what Paul says. He says, For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It would make no sense to say that those who do the law are made righteous, for they are already righteous in as much as they fulfill the law. Rather, the verse means that God will declare those who keep the law as righteous. Similarly, even though every human being is a liar, God remains true, so the quote, that you may justify, be justified in your words, in Romans 3, 4. Justified here cannot be said to claim one is made righteous. God is proved to be right or vindicated in his words, which is certainly a forensic sense. We find the forensic vindication coming in. Not only does it differ with the new perspective, but fundamentally undermines the Roman Catholic view of justification as well. The verb for justification does not mean to be made righteous and the Pauline corpus. And the way you do it, like I was saying, is 
you get the lexicons out, you get your Hebrew Old, Old Testament out, you get your Septuagint out, and you do the hard, nitty-gritty work of lexical analysis. And when it's done, you realize it doesn't do it at that level, and it doesn't do it at the logical level either. It just it makes no sense in most of those contexts to take a, an infused, made righteous process event required by both the new perspective and Roman Catholics. Well, take uh, take a minute or so and uh, close us out here. Okay. Well, I mean, I think the best way to close it out is that Martin Luther was right. The doctrine of justification is the article upon which the church either stands or falls. You know, if I had to stand before the tribunal of God on the day of judgment and look back upon either my righteousness or my ability to keep covenant, I would fail and fail horribly. You know, in a sense, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, as the old hymn says. It is, I look to Christ and to Christ alone, for all other views fall short of the regulative measure that God requires. And in this day... We don't need to have a new perspective on Paul. We need to have people return back to the old exegetical work of interpreting what's already been found in Paul. And people who are grabbing hold of the new perspective, I want to say, I understand what you're doing. Just don't think that you're Protestant, and don't think that I can be reconciled with every verb of the New Testament in that sense. So I, I would warn them in that. And those are some of my final declarations on that. Well, Bill, appreciate you coming on the show, sir. You're a wealth of knowledge, and I uh, look forward to having you back on in the future. Keep fighting the good fight. Say hello to the wife for us, and uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate it. God bless, Evan. God bless. All right, folks, and uh, that was the show. And I uh, look forward to next week. We will do our conclusion to the Reformation Month and uh, learned quite a lot and I've had some very good shows and good discussion. Uh, again, go to Theology Matters with Clues on Facebook if you want to hear those old podcasts and uh, appreciate everybody coming on and uh, you know listening to us. Uh, like us on Facebook, share it, and uh, look forward to seeing you guys next week. God bless.